0: nice to be together, even on a cool, rainy Sunday morning. It feels, feels nice to hear the sound of, of God refreshing and renewing not only the, the soil and the earth, but his people in worship. Let me invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. We'll be looking in chapter 2 together today continuing to study in this month of July what what the scriptures have to say about reconciliation, about the the drawing together of of all that God has created, particularly all uh, of humanity, but but even creation itself, into one new body, one new humanity, one new people. And I think this text this morning is one of the most powerful visions of reconciliation that's out there, worldwide, in the history of humanity, and in the center of our New Testament. So you're opening to Ephesians 2, let me just ask you by show of hands, how many of you this summer have been engaged in home improvement projects? How many of you have got something you've been doing, you're currently doing, maybe you're you're painting a wall? What are you guys doing, Steve? You're building a garage and a studio. Who else has got a, a project they're working on? I saw a couple of hands go up. We've been building a shed, a clubhouse in our backyard. We've been carpeting and been doing flooring and painting. There are uh, kind of a plethora of, of projects out there and I've noticed the past probably six months on Saturday mornings when I've gone to the Ace Hardware up the road, it's, it's unbelievable how many people are crammed into that store. There, there have been Saturday mornings or afternoons where the line runs from the register back through the usual queue, and then it goes into a separate aisle. There are like 30 people in that little ace waiting uh, to buy whatever it is they need to go back home and start their projects. Everybody seems to be making improvements. And I, I, I looked up in 2020, Americans spent half, almost half a trillion dollars on home improvement projects, right? Places like Lowe's or or Ace or Home Depot. And to, to put that number kind of into comparison, half a trillion dollars is almost a third of the entire GDP of Mexico. So you take a whole nation's gross domestic product, we spend almost a third of that on our home improvement projects question I want to ask us to, to think about in relationship to those, those projects is what's behind those projects? What's driving our vision of, of renovation or home improvement? What motivates that kind of work? And I think if you, if you sort of look back over the past year and a half, a big part of what kind of drove this uptick in, in home improvement and renovation was the desire to make our homes more comfortable, right? To make our homes a, a, a more uh, inviting retreat from the world for ourselves. And in pursuit of that vision, we've spent our time, we've spent our, our money, many, many of us have spent part of those stimulus checks, we've spent our sweat equity, right, building this, this more comfortable reality for us to to live, and in some cases, to work from home in. And there's nothing wrong with with comfort, per se, but I want to hold kind of that thought or that vision of, of renovation and home improvement up against the one that we find in this passage of Scripture this morning. Because in the book of Ephesians, Paul describes a a major home improvement, a major renovation project that was taking place in his own lifetime. And it was a remodeling, not so much of of Paul's own living space, but a remodeling of what Paul describes as the, the house of God, the temple of God, the worshiping place of God. And that's what I'd like for us to, to look together at here in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. But as we hear Paul describe the, the architecture and the vision and, and the work of renovation described in these verses, I want us to think about what is driving God's vision for interior design? What motivates him to go to these great lengths to remodel? And is, is God's primary desire to make his own living room cozier and more comfortable for the people that are already there, already dwelling in that place with him? Or does God have instead a vision to renovate so that more of the world out there, more of the outside world could come into that living space, into the place of his presence? so that they might be joined together with him instead. Let's open then to Ephesians 2, and let me pray for us as we bring our hearts and minds to God's word for us. Jesus, the the book of Hebrews says you are uh, the master builder, the architect over God's house. We read in these verses that you are the foundation, the cornerstone beneath that household. Lord, you have visions and designs and purposes for us as your people that we need to listen to. But Lord, we also want to recognize and want to give you permission as we we come together this morning for you to do hard work, Difficult work, expensive work within the church, within us, within our own hearts and lives, so that we might be the kind of people, the kind of temple, the kind of body that pleases you and is, is fitting, is congruent with what we see expressed in your word to us. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach this morning, may the meditations of each of our hearts Be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, it's in your name, our rock, our redeemer, our cornerstone that we pray. Amen. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians has this rich, expressive, vivid vision of what the gospel of Jesus Christ has accomplished. One of my favorite books of the New Testament, I've preached through it here at JCC. It's it's a place I regularly come back to in my own readings, my own devotions. But I think that the thesis, if you will, of Paul's whole letter of Ephesians, you can find in the first chapter, verse 10. And it says how God the Father, in sending Jesus Christ the Son, in the work of Jesus Christ the Son, this is what God is up to Chapter 1, verse 10 says, God desires to bring unity to all things, everything, in heaven and on earth, through the work of his son, Jesus. He's reconciling, he's redeeming, he's, he's tearing down the powers and principalities that would stand against that kind of unity. But as Paul's writing to a particular group of people, to the churches in and around the city of Ephesus. He recognizes that there's a a particular problem, there's a particular testing ground to this thesis for these, these readers, this audience. The testing ground for the gospel in Paul's day was this huge division, this huge chasm between two groups within not only the early church, but in the ancient world. It was a division between the Jews and the non-Jews, or the the Gentile people of the empire. I want us to listen as Paul addresses particularly these Ephesian churches, which were predominantly Gentile in composition. How does he describe the the dynamic and the division represented in his day? Verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember... Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, those who are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, right? The, the uncircumcised Gentiles and the circumcision would have been the, the Jewish faction of that day. Remember, verse 12, the time when you were separate from Christ. And here he's pointing back to the beginning of chapter 2 where where he describes a time when when we were apart from from God. We were lost in darkness and and despair and before we were called and redeemed and, and saved out of that hopelessness. He says, remember at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Paul, if we're using the, the language of, of renovation or, or home design, I think Paul in these two verses describes a kind of architecture of exclusion or division. Two groups of people that did not mix with one another. We have to, I think, kind of wrap our heads around what sort of division looked like in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they didn't have racism in the same way that we experience racism in the United States today. You know, racism along, along skin color lines is, is largely a, a more modern development. The racialization of people by color. But in the ancient world, they also harbored deep divisions, deep pre- prejudices, deep hostilities But often these ran along ethnic and cultural lines based on on language and custom and religion. Verses 11 and 12 here remind us just how divided, how excluded Jew and Gentile were in Paul's day. If you try to picture the composition of the Roman Empire, Sociologist Rodney Stark estimates that roughly 1 in 6 people in the Roman Empire were Jewish. So many cities, you know, Rome, Ephesus, other places, they could easily have 20 or 30% of the population were Jews living in these cities, depending on on where you were in the empire. But I want to give you kind of a picture with with two historic or historical examples of of what relations looked like between Jew and Gentile in the places they lived and shared space. The first is uh, around A.D. 50, during the time of Paul's ministries, kind of squarely in the, in the middle of his life and work. Somewhere around A.D. 50, a handful of historians tell us that the Jews living in the city of Rome became the target of a, a persecution or or discrimination from the Emperor Claudius. We don't know exactly what was behind this. There, there may have been sort of a political upheaval or uprising, but we know that the result was at least part of the Jewish community living in Rome, which would have numbered tens of thousands at that time, were forcibly expelled from the city. They were, they were forced to leave their homes, leave their occupations, leave their, 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 their family and, and, and extended communities and they were caused to flee as refugees into other cities of the empire. They were directly discriminated against on the basis of their ethnic identity as Jews. And we see in Acts chapter 18, two of these Jewish refugees, people fleeing the the discrimination of, of the emperor in Rome, run into Paul in the city of Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla. They had been driven out of Rome. They come and bring their their work as tent makers to the city of Corinth, and they end up partnering with Paul in the work of the gospel. So that's that's one sort of snapshot or historical example of Roman animosity, Roman hostility being directed toward people of, of the Jewish culture and ethnicity and faith. However, as is often the case when hostilities are expressed in one direction, they often come back in in the opposite direction. Division is is typically a two-way street. And so, scholar Craig Keener, New Testament scholar Craig Keener, describes changes in the nation of Palestine, and in particular in the city of Jerusalem, that took place around the same time, in the first century. Of course, Jews and Gentiles had this long history of of division and and war and occupation and and, and hatred for one another. But one of the ways the Jewish people responded to that was in Jerusalem... ...in the place where they worshipped at the temple... ...they decided to erect a boundary wall at the far edge of the temple courts. And at the perimeter of, of the temple courtyards... They posted this, this wall, and there was a sign on the wall at several places. And those signs warned that any Gentile who entered the temple courtyards, even the far outside perimeter of the temple courtyard, would be held responsible for their own death. Right? Don't blame us. If you come past this point, we have permission to enact violence on you. And the message was very clear that Gentiles were not welcome in the household of God. In the same way that the Jews were not welcome in in the emperor's backyard in Rome, Jews said, you're not welcome in our backyard here in Jerusalem. So there was this mutual exclusion. And so we find in... Acts chapter 21, a couple chapters after we hear about these refugees fleeing Rome because of the persecution there, we're told Paul goes to Jerusalem as part of one of his missionary journeys. He's there bringing a gift to the the Jewish, largely Jewish church in Jerusalem to keep them uh, fed during the time of famine. But while he's in Jerusalem, he goes into the temple courtyards to offer sacrifices there. And while he's there on the temple ground, someone recognizes Paul. And they know, they've heard rumors, right, about Paul being friendly with with Gentile people. They know he mixes with Gentile brothers and sisters in in the work he does outside of Jerusalem. And so a rumor begins to to spread the day he's there that the, the people he's brought with him into the temple are uncircumcised Gentiles. And remember those signs that were posted at the perimeter of the temple. And so we're told uh, in the the book of Acts chapter 21 that the whole city's anger was aroused against Paul and those with him. And a mob forms within the temple courtyards and they are prepared to seize Paul, to, to take his life. ...the the Roman guard, who's also present, intervenes, they silence the crowd temporarily... ...and they permit Paul to address this audience that that seeks to take his life. And Paul begins to walk through his own experiences as a Jew... ...as a Pharisee, as one then converted to the Christian faith and the gospel. And the crowd goes along, they listen, they permit Paul to speak up... until a certain point in his discourse. We see in chapter 22, verse 21, then Paul says, The Lord said to me, go and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, the crowd listened to this, listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. this intense hatred, right? This rejection that in any way, shape, or form, God could be at work. God could have a desire to be a a God that that lives and and ministers among the Gentile people. And so the result of, of that mob is that Paul is seized, Paul is arrested, and Paul then stands trial. And it's a trial that that the rest of the book of Acts communicates to us. It takes Paul eventually to his imprisonment in Rome. That's what this incident gives way to. And so it's probably two or three years later, Paul is sitting in his prison cell in Rome, writing this letter to the Ephesians. He's writing to this group of brothers and sisters that he's worked among. And he describes in verses 11 and 12 what, what any reasonable observer might have concluded at that point in time. That the prospect of bringing Jew and Gentile together was hopeless. Right? The separation was too great. The division, the animosity, the hatred what was, was almost you know, unimaginable and, and, and too far to be crossed. The divisions, the wounds, too great to be healed. And we could think about our own world, our own context. And whether the divisions that we currently experience, whether they're racial in nature, whether they're ethnic in nature, whether they're, they're along culture or class lines, whether they're political divisions, religious divisions, we might also conclude that the, the distance is just too great. These things cannot be brought together. But after observing just how far apart these two groups of people truly are, Paul, dare I say defiantly, tenaciously points out what he believes is a key detail they have missed. One mitigating circumstance that he points to in verse 13. And Paul says, but now. He says, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul sees that the architecture of exclusion and division in the world out there. But he says, you have been moved into a new reality. There is is renovation work that has begun because now you are in Christ Jesus. And Paul says that means everything is different. You who were far away, you who were divided not only from God as your creator and redeemer, but also from your fellow brother or sister, you have been brought near. It says, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's plenty of reason for us to think that Paul's vision here was naive. Right? There's plenty of reason for, for people to have been dismissive of Paul's call to bring near these warring factions. Paul was imprisoned. Paul would soon be executed for this gospel of Jew and Gentile brought together. But in Christ Jesus, that vision, that gospel, grew and persisted and began to change the face and the demographics of the early church. In the same way, 200 and some odd years ago, people could have said that William Wilberforce's passion to abolish the slave trade in England was naïve. Right, That it should have evaporated after decades of ridicule and defeat in the Houses of Parliament. Right, but Wilberforce believed in this gospel Paul was preaching. But in Christ Jesus. Things are different. And in the same way... MLK's dream of of an America that would no longer be marked by racial division or racial injustice felt like a far-off vision in the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement. It continues to feel like a far-off vision even today. But in Christ Jesus... In Christ Jesus, we're told that reconciliation between the people of our world is not Paul's idea. It's not a political idea. Ephesians chapter 2 says reconciliation is a gospel idea. It's God's desire. It's God's idea. Paul says reconciliation goes straight to the heart of what the cross is all. Look at me at the kind of renovation Paul describes in verses 14 through 18. Verse 13 in the background, right? Now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He who has made the two groups one, And who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Remember that wall erected in Jerusalem to keep out the Gentiles. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one New humanity out of the two thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility he came and he preached peace to you who were far away he preached peace to those who were near For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Paul is describing God's desire, not for a household, not for a temple that excludes the people he created. The one blood line of Adam, but rather to bring them together. ...to renovate that household so that there might be peace among his people. And these verses say that the cross of Jesus Christ... ...is is God's most powerful tool to affect that kind of change. The cross is the means by which he would bring all the nations of the earth into his household... And so in verse 14, we're told that God has sent Jesus Christ to be our peace. Paul doesn't say he sent Christ to help us make peace. Paul says he has sent Christ to be that peace. Peace, the the, 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 the dissolution, the disarmament of our hostilities, Paul says, is something connected to the body of Jesus himself. This passage says, it is in his flesh that Jesus deals with our hostilities and our hatred for one another. Look at how physical verses 15 and 16 are in the way they describe this work. It says that Christ has taken to, to, chosen to take all the things that divide us, all of our hatred all of our hostility. He gathers all this stuff that would polarize us to the ends of the earth, and he draws it into his own person. Jesus has chosen to make his body the the locus for peacemaking. And it says he's chosen to make his own flesh the demolition zone for our dividing walls. Paul says Jesus has gathered the scattered and isolated and polarized parts of our reality, and he has drawn them into himself so that he might forge one new humanity in that body. Scripture says that to be joined to the body of Christ is to know peace, is to know reconciliation, is to know the disarmament of our own hatred. But I imagine that the peace Christ has accomplished for us is harder work than we tend to imagine. Peace, as envisioned here, is not agreeing to to disagree. Peace is, is not just sort of stuffing or ignoring the source of our conflict and division. The kind of peace that's expressed in this passage is acknowledging that there are real obstructions, there are real dividing walls that stand in the way of peace and reconciliation. In order to move forward, we have to deal with, we have to confront with the hope and the power of the gospel those dividing walls. I want to play for you a, a brief clip from the film we watched Thursday night here uh, about the work of John Perkins. And John Perkins shares about how in the early uh, 1980s, late 1970s, his organization in Mississippi was able to purchase a health center, public health center in Mississippi. But the first thing they had to do after purchasing the building was address a particular wall in that building. Let me play this for you.
1: We need to turn it into beauty. We bought a health center uptown. That was something really remarkable. First time any black people have ever owned a piece of land up in the uh, little city circle. See, this would have been the, that's a white go in there, front door. And then the black would have went in this side door. Almost 50 years ago now, 45 years ago. There was a black room and a white room. When all the whites were served, then the black was served. The first thing we did before we opened it for service, we went in and we tore down the wall that separated the whites from the black. And we brought everybody in through the same door. And white folk came, poor white folks came, and now anybody come And from the very first day.
0: For to, to build the, the household of God, I'm going to go back to, uh, can we go back to the previous scripture passage there. Thanks, Sam. For to, to do this work, we have to address the walls that, that stand between us. Sometimes those are, are physical, sometimes those look differently. John Perkins writes uh, in his autobiography, Let Justice Roll Down. That too often we, we want to, to move past those walls without dealing with them. He says we want to move quickly toward forgiveness without dealing with repentance. Right? Without the changing of our hearts and the changing of our actions as a people. And he says too often we want this sort of sugar-coated vision of reconciliation, this sugar-coated vision of brotherly love between God's people without looking deeply into the realities, he says, of violence and poverty that have long divided us and and caused wound, caused division, that we've grown comfortable with ignoring. He says if we're going to receive the kind of peace Jesus proclaims here, we have to acknowledge our dividing walls and we must repent of them. Of course, we don't don't have a dividing wall that runs the length of our sanctuary. We don't discriminate in, in such visible and tangible ways. But how often in our desire to be right have we put distance between ourselves and those we disagree with? How often in my desire to be comfortable have I settled into a life where I don't even have to address or think about the realities of racism or poverty on a daily basis. Let me ask you this maybe as a kind of litmus test for us, as we think about where these dividing walls might be. How often have we made ourselves available to listen, to try to understand those who have what might be very different experiences, very different perspectives, whether it's on, on racism or culture, or what it means to be a human being, how often have we made space simply to listen and understand their perspective, their desire to be welcomed and known? I think if we're going to really begin to do something about racism and the other things that divide us as the people of God. The only way that's possible is to invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. As David prays in the Psalms, to see if there is any wicked way in me. Are we willing to to stop long enough to do that searching work, that listening work, even when it makes us uncomfortable? I think what's described here is the humility to acknowledge where we're divided, the humility to acknowledge we might have Blind spots. When we hear people talk about racial injustice, are we quick to listen? Are we quick to, to, to hear and give space to understand what they're communicating? Or are there parts of us that get prickly? Are there parts of us that get defensive, get protective in the process? Let me say to you if we are a people who live at the foot. Of Jesus' cross, we have no reason to be defensive. He has disarmed our hostility and the things that divide us. Instead, if we come to the foot of the cross, we are reminded of the incredible mercy we have already been shown as God's people. And it's at the foot of the cross that we begin to ask the Spirit to move in us, to cause us to yield to the things that he desires to do. As verse 16 says, as we come back to the foot of Jesus' cross, we give God permission to put to death our hostilities, to put to death our divisions. Think about how amazing that verse is. God takes an instrument of torture. God takes the instrument on which the Son of God was executed, and he uses it to disarm hatred to disarm and put to death violence, to break apart our division so that we might become one new humanity. I want to invite you to respond in in two ways this morning. The first is to seriously engage with our time of all-church prayer this, this month. It'll be this Wednesday. We've been trying to build this habit of once a month stopping, praying during the day for our church, focusing on a passage of Scripture together, and then coming together at the end of that day to pray. So we'll, we'll gather here in the sanctuary this Wednesday at 7 to pray. We're going to send out a prayer guide either tomorrow or Tuesday based on this passage for you to, to pray into, for you to reflect on, for you to invite the Holy Spirit to do your own work of, of searching your heart, of allowing Him to show us, where our dividing walls are. That's one way to respond. The second way is I want to simply leave you with this final piece of Ephesians 2. I'm going to ask Karen to come up as we prepare to to take our offerings. I want to also invite you to reflect on this vision, this passage, where Paul describes, after the work of demolition, After the work of Christ, dismantling and putting to death our hatred and hostility and our defensiveness. Right, there's there's level ground. All that that garbage has been cleared off the temple site. And instead, there is a foundation for a new building, a new people, a new family to, to rise upward into the heavens. I'm going to read this passage slowly then I'm going to invite the ushers to come up and, and we'll have some time just, just to sit with that and to ask God to do this work among us. You read Ephesians 2, 19, to the end of the chapter. Consequently, in light of all that Jesus Christ has done on the cross and in his own body, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are fellow citizens with God's people and you are members of his household built not with a dividing wall in between you but built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him the whole building is joined together as one it's joined together And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So in him you too are being built together. To become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit.